sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love, the government of the government love, the government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know that not long ago we changed our format to bring you more in-depth analysis as well as making our full-length midweek show an exclusive bonus for our Patreon supporters. When we made that change, I mentioned that we'd still be doing interviews, making them freely available to everyone, probably with them coming out every, oh, four to six weeks or so. And what that allows us to do is to be very selective about who we interview, which I think is a very good thing. Take today's interview, for example. A while ago, I was looking at the recent releases from Harvard University Press because, well, you know, that's the sort of thing I do with my free time. And I came across a book about how the lack of really robust competition is hurting the United States. I've sort of believed that for a while, and so it's a topic really near and dear to my heart, and I actually considered writing a a book about it a a while back. And so I immediately contacted Harvard University Press. They got me connected with Thomas Philippon, and, well, you'll hear the result here in just a minute. But before we get to that interview, I want to thank all of the new Patreon supporters we've gotten after my announcement on the last episode that I'd be ending the politics guys after the 2020 elections if we weren't able to get our support level up to 5% of our audience. Now, that 5% number isn't hard and fast. It basically represents my best guess as to what percentage we would need to be able to put the show on a sound financial footing. There was math and projections and all that involved and so forth. But we're making uh, a little bit of progress. Obviously, the two things that would be more helpful is if more people pledge their support and if we had a broader base of support, meaning getting more listeners. And honestly, we've tried buying ads and that. It's just not very effective. What's really effective is having people tell their friends about that. So when I say at the end of every episode, hey, please share the show on social media. It's because that's the most effective thing we can do to broaden our base of support. And that would be really helpful. You know, and the nicest thing about it is it's just simple and totally free. But also, if you can't afford to support the show and ensure that we're going past the 2020 elections, that would be great too. You know how to do that. I'm sure at this point, patreon.com slash politics guys. And You know, some people have said, you know, I don't like Patreon or I just want to do like a one-time thing. Can we do that? Yes, absolutely. We have PayPal set up for that. And you can just find that at politicsguys.com slash support. All right, enough of me yammering on. Let's get to my interview with Thomas Philippon. My guest today is Thomas Philippon, a professor of finance at the Stern School of Business at New York University. Professor Philippon is a member of the Monetary Advisory Panel of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and the author of the recently released book, The Great Reversal, How America Gave Up on Free Markets, which we'll be talking about today. Thomas Philippon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, I thought that before we got into the actual substance of The Great Reversal, uh, I actually wanted to talk to you about the format, because it seemed, at least to me, that it was designed to be read either in a couple of different ways by maybe different types of readers, because I felt like a person could casually read through it and still get your basic arguments and why you're making them. But also it seems like it's designed for the more detail-oriented reader to kind of dig in as to your data and methods. And so I'm wondering, 
Was this a conscious choice you made or did it just sort of happen that way? No, it was a choice. I think I, I, I write books the way I like the books that I read to be. So, you know, I know that I like to have uh, a quick understanding of what's going on. So you can jump from one picture to the next and figure out what the, you know, the main argument is. But also that if you want to dive deeper into uh, one particular topic, then the book gives you that opportunity as well. So yes, it was a deliberate choice. And I wanted, the reason I wanted to point that out to listeners is because oftentimes when books are written by academics, it, there's a feeling that they're not necessarily that accessible, even though there are good ideas in them. And one of the things I really liked about it was that that decision you made to write the book that way, to make it accessible really to everyone, which I, which I think is just great. Oh, thank you. I, I very much appreciate what you just said, because um, that's exactly what I tried to do. Well, it, it certainly worked for me. <laughs> so let, let's get into the substance. Your book is all about competition. And so it seems to me that the best place to start is with just that. And competition, of course, isn't something that's good in and of itself. It's what competition brings us. And so I thought we could start with you talking a little bit about what you see as the really the key benefits of competition. Yes. So the first benefits of competition, the more obvious ones are for consumers. And for consumers, competition really means two things. It means more choices and lower prices. So that's exactly what why, why we think competition is good for, for consumers. You have a choice of many different products. Uh, you're not stuck with just one provider of services, and you get oh, and you get a good deal on what you buy. So that's the benefit of competition for consumers. These are the most obvious ones and the one we we tend to associate most directly with competition. Um, then you have secondary benefits. Uh, it turns out that a competitive economy is also very good for workers because the flip side of uh, low prices is high real wages. So when we say that competition is good for consumers, it's also good for workers. It increases demand for labor and also it increases the real value of your, uh, of your earnings. Uh, it's also good for productivity because firms that compete, they need to invest because if they don't invest, then their competitors catch up and overtake them. So competition gives incentives to businesses to increase their investment and investment means productivity and productivity means higher standards of living. So that these are the main channels. That's the reason why we like competition. And while you didn't directly mention the word innovation, I would guess that kind of is rolled into the productivity gains that you get through innovations. Would that be, would that be right? Absolutely. Okay. And so the, the fundamental argument of your book is that the United States, which at one point in the not that recent past had a very competitive system, but that it's actually gotten significantly less competitive, especially over the last 20 years in a, in a lot of sectors. Uh, yeah. And so I, I, you, you kind of talk about the implications of this in a number of areas. And it seemed to me that there were four key areas you focused on uh, prices, wages, investment, and productivity growth. And I thought it might be useful for us to kind of just take a quick look at what the data is telling us about the uh, what the dearth of competition has 
has resulted in, in these four areas, starting with, with prices. So what do we know about how prices have changed in the last 20 years? Yeah, so if you, uh, if you look at um, prices uh, of some, some sectors, then uh, you can do international comparisons, which I find oftentimes very useful. Uh, in fact, that's part of the reason the book is called The Great, the Great Reversal, because there are a couple of well-identified industries like airlines, telecoms, where the U.S. went from being the most consumer-friendly competitive marketplace to being one of the worst. And at the same time, Europe went uh, the other way. So, And it was striking to me because when I came to the U.S. 20 years ago in 1999 to be a student, uh, I noticed these price differences. I noticed that it was much cheaper to buy uh, you know, like to, to pay for your monthly cell phone bills in the U.S. than in than in France. I noticed that it was much cheaper to access the internet uh, from home in the U.S. than it was back in uh, in Paris, because these industries were way more competitive here than in France. And um, you could see it because I had more choices because I, I paid less for the same service. And 20 years later, what's striking is that all of this has reversed. So the the, the typical, uh, the median uh, household in the US pays at least twice as much as median households in Europe for their cell phone uh, services and for their uh, cable or broadband internet plans. So that's a gigantic difference. This is at least $100 extra that you pay every month here, uh, extra because of lack of competition. So I think these are the striking price differences. And, and you're not, I mean, while you're highlighting some particular areas in the book, this is much broader than just a couple of industries, a couple of examples, right? I mean, looking at the, the broader data, we find this in an awful lot of sectors, correct? Yes, absolutely. We find, we find that uh, in, in not all of them, but in many sectors, um, and uh, telecom is the, the one that's easier because people can relate directly. Yeah. I mean, people know how much they pay every month for their cell phone. They know how much they pay every month for their either cable or, or you know, broadband internet. And what they don't know is that they would be paying less than half of that if they lived anywhere else uh, in the developed countries than in the U.S. Oh, wow. So literally, like, uh, you know, uh, the, the, a good cell phone plan in, <clears throat> in France starts at 20 euros per month. Wow. Wow. Unlimited data. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, internet access, high speed internet at home starts at 50 euros with, uh, you know, channels uh, and, uh, and and all the cable benefits that you get from that. So so now look at your bill and it's going to be north of $100. And I'm saying half of that you shouldn't be paying. Yeah, that's, that's um, crazy. <laughs> so, so that's, but of course, this is a bit extreme. So not all, it's not true in all industries. Some industries are still very competitive in the US, the retail sector is still very competitive. So retail margins are pretty low. Um, but if you look broadly speaking at um, now, imagine you do it for all the goods and services that the typical household in the US is going to buy. Um, so like to give, let's be, let's be a bit more concrete. So the median household in the US earns about $50,000 per year, give or take. Um, and um, you know, if I look at what they buy, and I look at and I compare the prices uh, compared to either what they used to pay 20 years ago, uh, adjusted for productivity and inflation, or what they would be paying in other countries. I find that um, 
they pay about $300 extra every month. Yeah, that's, that's uh, a lot. Yeah, that's like $300 per month. So multiplied by 12, like $3,600 uh, per year of extra spending. Out of you know an income of fifty thousand dollars, that's a lot of money. So that's the, because of, of competition. Yeah. So so then, if if consumers are paying more money, that money's obviously going somewhere. Now, where we would hope it would be going would be into higher wages and greater investment to create better and you know better goods and so forth. But that's not really the case, is it? Exactly right. So that's exactly the. So the second thing is. Where is the money going after? And that the answer is pretty simple. It's going 100% of this extra money that firms are making is going towards higher dividends and, uh, you know, or share buybacks, which is kind of another way of paying dividends. So, of course, the money is not lost. I mean, it's not burnt away or it's like it's, it's recycled in the economy. But the problem is it's recycled towards people who have a lot of uh, capital income. And these are people who are typically already very rich. So in this, uh, the extra profit turns out in, that it's it's going to be lead to lower wages and higher profits by firms. Now, I, I think some people, uh, certainly I've heard conservatives say that even if that is the case, uh, so many of us these days are shareholders in some way, whether it's through a retirement count or so, some other sort of mechanism. And so in a way... It's actually broadly beneficial to everyone. It just happens to be slightly more benefits to the the rich. Is that is that a fair assessment, or is there anything wrong with that picture in your view? Oh no, that's completely wrong. Okay, it's, it's completely wrong in two ways. Okay, the first of all is that if the excess profits turn into so the only way excess profits are good is if they increase investment. Okay, so now, and that can happen, by the way. So it's not, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. There are industries where you see lots of profit, but you know, m much of it is reinvested. But honestly, that never happened in industries that don't have enough competition. Because at the margin, if you make, if you're a firm and you have very high profit margins, if you don't face the threat of entry, the threat of another businesses coming in and stealing your customers, if you don't face that threat, then you will tend to pay these excess profits as dividends or share buyback rather than investing the money. And uh, so that's the big issue. And when I look at the data, I see that all these industries that over the past 20 years have increased their profit margins, they haven't increased their investment rates. In fact, their investment rates are, if anything, lower than similar industries in other countries. So you cannot make the case that these profits are used for investment right. in these industries. Now, it's, there are some issues where it's true. Like, Amazon is blowing back most of its money into investment. That's great. And we all benefit from it. Um, some of the tech sectors are still doing some of that. They used to do a lot more. I mean, Apple used to essentially put all of its profit into new investment. Now, today, of course, their profits are so high, there's no possible way they could do that. So they pay dividends instead. Yeah. Uh, but but there are periods in time where they didn't. So it's not as if profits are always bad, but they are only good to the extent that they increase investments. Right. If they don't, then it's always going to be a net loss in the aggregate because it's inefficient to have market power. Now, so that's the first thing. The second thing is the distribution. Now, it is true that this, there is a lack of, in the, there's, a, there's a loss for everybody. Like GDP shrinks if there is not enough competition. But it's not as if money, money is burned. So it is true that the profits are going to be recycled. Um, now, whether it's going to benefit everybody 
that's an open question. If you look at the data, even if you take into account 401ks and investment uh, into retirement uh, accounts, the concentration of capital ownership is still so skewed that it, it benefits really mostly people who are already very rich. Now, it's true that if we had more diverse capital ownership, then it would be much more widespread. But given the capital ownership we have today, that's not happening. Right. And so what happened around the year 2000 or so that led to this pretty significant decline in competitiveness, which you, which I think you chronicle really well in the book? Well, that's a tricky one. You see, like, uh, that's why I look a lot at, at Europe, because Europe is nice as a counterexample and right. also um, as an application of uh, what's of principles that were really developed in the US and then applied successfully elsewhere. So the European, um, like the, the competition policy of Europe from regulation or deregulation of markets and until into uh, antitrust, this is very much like inspired by what the US used to do. So it's interesting to see that, um, you know, it's working in Europe the same way it used to work in the US. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of a, it's a good validation. Now, exactly why the U.S. went backward over the the twenty years uh, I've been here? That is more complicated. I think it, I don't think it's a single cause. I think there are like um, you know many industries have different stories. If you look at the um, if you look at the airline industry, I think after nine eleven they they lost a lot of money. So. But there were many of them teetering on the, on the brink of bankruptcy. And so they said, well, we have to merge, otherwise we're going to go bankrupt. And you could make the case that one or two mergers were justified. So at the time, you had eight major national uh, carriers, major airlines. So maybe going from eight to seven or six, you could justify that. But we went from eight to four, and now clearly we don't have enough competition anymore. Um, they use the excuse of, you know, uh, being hurt by uh, by 9-11 and then the lack of money after that as a way of convincing regulators that they should be allowed to merge a lot. And I think that was a mistake. Um, in the telecom, well, there was, uh, of course, there was a the huge bankruptcy of WorldCom uh, and the accounting scandal that removed a big competitor in the market. Uh, and then after that, lots of consolidation of small players. Um, you know, so if you go industry by industry, you see that the dynamics are um, different. What I think is the common thread, however, is that um, is the role of lobbying, because the the way many of these firms get away with, um, you know, mergers that are a bit controversial or regulations that are very hurtful of to uh, newcomers and and protect the incumbents, is by lobbying. So I think that's kind of a, that's a common thread in all of that. And and that lobbying, a, a lot of it at least, it, it seems to me the argument you're making is is what economists called rent seeking. And so maybe before we go further, you can explain to listeners what you mean by rent seeking. So it's very simple. We, in economics, when we say that you earn a rent, it means that you earn money above and beyond what you would be getting if the market was competitive. Um, so sometimes rents are good. Like uh, the prime example would be the the system of patents. So if you if you just have an idea and you patent it, then uh, you know you're going to earn rent on your patent. Now, of course, you could say, well, ex post, once the once the idea has been implemented, uh, the rents your earnings are uh, unfair or unjustified. 
but we all understand that if you didn't have the you know if you didn't have the appeal of future rents then you wouldn't ha- you wouldn't work hard today to create the patent in the first place right so clearly rents can be used to you know pay for people's effort in creating new ideas um so that's that's what we think about it and then there's there's a, like a balance or a trade-off between you know like people could have the rents are a good motivation to work hard and come up with good ideas but the, you don't want the rents to be too high because otherwise it's lack of competition so you always have to find this this balance right um now rent seeking is when you try to protect your existing rents in ways that are unfair to other competitors. And you can do it in many ways, but the prime way would be to create uh, barriers to entry that prevent new competitors from entering your market. And the patent system is, is widely abused today by firms that do just that. They don't really produce new ideas. They just try to milk and, and create like a web of patents that, are, that is so complicated that nobody can enter their market. So they are not creating any value anymore. They are just spending time to create defensive patents. Um, you can have licensing requirements. So, you know, like the, the local uh, businesses can lobby to create a licensing requirement that would prevent new businesses from uh, competing with them and so on and so forth. All of that we would call rent seeking. Right. And, and it seems to me that that is. I hear when we talk about this, I hear a lot of people blame companies for doing this, but it seems to me that that's just fairly rational behavior as they're they're making this investment in the political process and they expect to they expect to make money out of it in a sense. And so I I wonder, do you think it's fair to say, well, these companies shouldn't be doing this if they're, you know, increasing value to shareholders? Well, it's always tricky. I mean, firms are, we, we, we think that uh, companies are here to make money and that's their primary job. Um, now, some people might disagree with that. Some people might say, well, we need to maybe ask companies to have another objective. They should be trying to do something else than make money for their shareholders. I, I don't, I mean, I'm more on the conservative side on that debate. I think that, I don't think that we should necessarily change the rule of the game. The companies, you know, their job is to make money. So I think that it's the game itself that we want to design in such a way that by making money, they, they produce a good outcome. Right. And clearly there, the issue is the political campaign finance contribution. Lobbying itself, I don't think it's a bad thing because first of all, lobbying can be useful. Sometimes the firms lobby, but that just really means they spend time explaining and arguing the case for a particular regulation and they, they have the knowledge and the outcome is pretty good. Um, I think the problem is when uh, campaign, um, you know, campaigns become so expensive that the only way for candidates to uh, be elected and reelected is to dial for dollars all the time and then accept large corporate contribution, which yeah. then, when they are elected, makes it easier for the lobbyists to to get their way. And that's the problem. Yeah, and, and you have a a great discussion of this in the book. And as you sort of preface it, at one point you have this great line where you say, to analyze the impact of lobbying on political outcomes is to enter the realm of bad data and wild guesses. And so I really like that. Why is it so difficult to make a clear, you know, empirical connection between lobbying and these inefficient political or economic outcomes? Well, there are two main issues. One is, of course, that 
uh, when people do something that they know is not quite right, they try to hide it. Right. So that the lobbying effort that you can easily measure almost surely is the one that is the the better one. Because the, the, the bad lobbying efforts, you don't see it because it, because the perpetrators want to hide it. So that means there's a huge selection issue in the kind of data you get to see. You get to see only the bright side. Okay, the dark side of the moon is never something that you're going to see. And so you have a big bias in that. If you look at the, if you look at the data naively, you're not, you're going to find that uh, bad lobbying doesn't really happen. Well, it does happen. It just gets uh, hidden away. Right. So that's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is an issue that uh, is at the core of economic research over the past uh, 30 years. And that's the issue of, um, so we, it has different names, but it's the basic idea that uh, people do things for a reason, and therefore you can, simple correlations don't tell you the truth. Um, here's a good example of that. If you look at um, the lobbying by the big tech firms, okay, we talk about them a lot today. So if you look at the joint lobbying by uh, Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, all of these guys. Um, then th what's striking in the data is that for a long time, they were actually punching much below their weight right. in terms of lobbying. Like they were big, successful, rich companies, and they had almost no lobbying presence in Washington, D.C., much less than you would expect given the size of their business. Why? Well, because they didn't feel the need, because they felt like they were successful, very popular, so nobody would come and bother them. Therefore, why would they spend money on lobbyists that were not useful to them? Now, today, of course, <laughs> they feel the heat. Yeah. They, they are worried. And so they start spending tons of money on lobbying. Now, think of what it does. Now, so that means that at the time period where the, where the business is not under threat, then you see no lobbying expenditures. When it is under threat, it is precisely when it's more likely that something bad is going to happen right. to them. Mm -hmm. It's exactly when they start spending money. Now, if you look at the correlation naively, you're going to find that high lobbying expenditure is correlated with more antitrust action against them. And you're going to conclude that, you know, lobbying increases <laughs> antitrust, which makes no sense. But of course, because you're picking up the correlation the other way. Um, so that is the second big issue in, in, in this whole research. So you need to find very smart ways to tease out what's going on. The same happens with elections. Uh, the same happened with all of these political economy issues where correlations can be very misleading. And so that's why you need a smart way to look at the data. The good news is you know, great researchers have been working on that now, and we have a better understanding. Yeah, and one of the things I loved about the book is that you do a great job of detailing all of these very clever ways of approaching this. I, I certainly never would have thought of it. I found myself regularly saying, wow, that's that's pretty that's pretty ingenious. And uh, uh, so basically, though, from all of this, it seems reasonable, certainly, to conclude that lobbying is at least buying access. And you could certainly argue buying policy outcomes or, or maybe negative outcomes, things that don't happen. And of course, that's particularly tricky because we can't measure policy actions that aren't taken. That's right. Uh, I think the part that buys access is absolutely obvious. Um, the fact that it influences policy is very well established. Uh, the extent to which uh, it is responsible for big policy changes, that's where the fight is happening. Because it's just, first of all, it's not always true. There are many other reasons why policy changes happen. Um, but 
um, you know, there is no question that lobbying has an impact on, on that front. Yeah. Today, you can see, again, the tech, the tech firms, um, despite, you could, you could say, well, despite their lobbying efforts, they're still under investigation by the FTC and DOJ today. So that suggests that, you know, something else than lobbying is, is at play. Uh, on the other hand, they managed to uh, get away with tons of very controversial acquisitions for at least 10 years without ever being investigated. Right. So that means their lobbying was very successful. You know, so where are we? We are somewhere in between. It seems to me that the, the best, I guess I'll call it a common sense case, is that there are an awful lot of smart people who, who work for these firms. And the idea that they would spend billions and billions of dollars on something that wasn't netting them anything is, it seems to me, almost ludicrous. Oh, I agree with you. That's, that's obvious. Um, so that's clear that it, it, it achieves something. Um, but again, the, there are cases where lobbying is good for everyone. If you design a regulation, um, you might have, they are like, they are genuine technical issues that are hard to resolve and where input from lobbyists or from firms is actually useful to design a better regulation. Right. And, and that's not something that would be bad for consumers. In fact, if the regulation is well designed, it would be good for everybody. The so, problem is that the same people who have the knowledge also have the incentive to yeah. tilt the regulation their way. Yeah. And, and that gets into the, the revolving door problem, right? Where you see government regulators and they go to work for the industries they were regulating and, and back and forth and so forth. And it's certainly a conflict of interest. But then there's that related problem of where, where do you get the expertise to know what the industry is doing? And largely that's going to be from within the industry, right? That's true, but the revolving door, yeah, I think that's another thing that I find fascinating. Like, what's good with being an economist and writing a book is it forces you to be coherent. Yeah. <laughs> most people don't realize in their daily life that they are not. So the very <laughs> same people, sometimes in the same sentence, are going to complain about the fact that are gonna, they're going to complain about professional politicians being disconnected or bureaucrats being disconnected from the real world. In the same sentence, they're going to complain about revolving doors. Right. Without realizing that they just contradicted themselves. Yeah. yeah. Because the only way to have bureaucrats that have experience outside bureaucracy is because they, had, they did something else before. And that's going to look like a revolving door. Now, you could, you could say, well, they have to get experience in other industries, but then that experience might not be useful. So the question is, it's always a matter of balance, where you strike the balance. So uh, on... So that's clear. On the other hand, I think that there are cases, like if you look at the, the FCC, the regulation of the, the telecom industry, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't have any proof, but I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the industry where U.S. consumers get ripped off the most. It's also the place where the revolving door is the most yeah. latent. I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, it, it, it seems like almost every... Uh, a commissioner ends up or was a top official at one of the at one of the big telecom companies, basically, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And and so at the same time, we see all of this going on in the United States. As you mentioned, Europe is is very different. And this is weird to me because I'm old enough that when I was growing up, everyone made fun of European bureaucrats and rules and how expensive and you know awful everything was. And yet you find that things change very much. And what, what I found particularly fascinating about this was 
your argument as to why this may be the case and sort of involving the structure of the, the EU and the countries involved. And so I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so Europe is very useful, uh, even for an American audience, um, for two reasons. The first one is that there are many industries where two things are changing at the same time, regulation and technology. And then technology can also change uh, the way an industry looks like, the way even concentration or markups or all of these things can change because of technology. So it's not easy to tease out what's the part that is due to regulation and what's the part due to technology. Um, but then if you have the chance of having two uh, regions like the US and the EU, where many industries overlap completely in terms of their technologies. So like the air, the entire transport industry, car, trains, airlines, um, you know, boats, all of that, shipping, all of that is exactly the same. Um, the telecom industry is exactly the same. Right. Um, the technology is the same, I mean. So if you see big differences, then you can attribute them to change, to policy differences. Right. And uh, and in Europe, there are clear cases. I mean, France used to have more expensive wireless service than the US until 2011. And in 2011, we brought in a competition in that industry by adding a fourth uh, carrier to uh, an oligopoly of three legacy carriers. And uh, just just that simple fact, bring a new competitor allowed us to lower the price by 50%, literally, from like 40 euros to 20 euros in two years. That's an amazing impact yeah. of competition. And that's got nothing to do with technology. It's purely uh, you know, regulation. And in that case, it's licensing requirements. So that's a great example. And then you can multiply this comparison to shed light on what's going on in the US as well. Um, so that's, that's one reason to look at Europe. And the second reason is to understand the dynamics of industry regulations. And there it's even more interesting because it's also there's a deep irony, which is the reason Europe in many markets today is delivering better prices for their uh, consumers is precisely because Europe today is implementing the policies that were uh, developed and perfected in the US in the 80s and 90s. So the European regulation today looks very much like the American regulation of the 80s and 90s. Right. Um, and so in that sense, as an American, is like very interesting to watch. Um, and with an added twist that this was a break from the past, a very deep break from the past, because many of the countries in Europe, maybe with the exception of the UK, which has a bit more of a free market tradition, but historically, Germany, Spain, Italy, France, none of these countries have a tradition of free market at all. They have the opposite. They have the tradition of the state intervening in the economy, you know, directing mergers, directing policy, industrial policy, promoting national champions, all of that. This, that's the history of Europe. That's the tradition. Right. And what's really interesting is that at the time where we created the single market in the late 90s, we put 18 countries like that around the table. Each of them, at home, having a tradition opposite to free market. Now, think about what these guys did around the table, the 18 of them at the time. If you don't think very hard, you would imagine that what they did was, well, create a bigger version of what they were doing at home. Sure. And yet the outcome was exactly the opposite. It was 180 degrees the other way. What they did was... Uh, create by far the most independent and pro-consumer 
market regulator in the world. In fact, to an extent that was so large that they leapfrogged over the US. Yeah. Um, so that's a very surprising outcome. But then you start thinking about it and realize, well, actually, it's exactly what the theory would predict. Once you understand that all of these guys are playing like political games, they, they, they try to figure out what's the best thing they can do. And at the national level, what they want to do is keep control, keep power. But at the EU level, they think about something else. If you're French, you're not just thinking, oh, it would be great if I could control what's going on in Brussels. You're also thinking, well, but it would be really bad if the Germans <laughs> yeah. or the Italians could do it against me. Right. And the Germans are thinking the same. They're thinking, you know, I don't want the French to be able to decide what the uh, market regulator is going to do in Brussels. And then all the smaller countries are thinking, well, we're going to be in a single market union with French and Germany. And they're going to be the biggest economies and the biggest political power in that place. We don't want them to be able to team up and decide for everybody else. So then in that new game, the very same countries who don't like free market at home find that free markets are great after yeah, yeah. And, and And they want very independent regulators to protect themselves against the other ones. So that solves the paradox. Right. That that was I I had never it never occurred to me to look at it that way before. When you laid it out, I just thought, wow, that's 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 really interesting. Uh, now, in the in the last part of the book, you take a really in depth look at the decline of competitiveness in the U.S. in in, in a number of three specific industries, really finance, healthcare, and tech. And I wanted to start with finance, and and you start off your discussion about finance by writing. When an industry is deregulated, wages and prices usually fall. In finance, they seem to rise. In most industries, innovation is good for growth, but financial innovations do not seem to improve capital allocation very much. And so my question is, well, what's going on here with finance? Yeah, I think finance was a classical case of, uh, um, you know, either excessive regulations or bad regulations and not enough competition. So that uh, essentially uh, large incumbents could create regulations, uh, sorry, innovations that were very beneficial to their uh, bottom line, but not very beneficial to uh, end users. Right. And uh, I think that was a lot of what's going on in, in finance throughout the 2000s. The good news, of course, is that since the crisis, it's, it's gotten better. In large part because people finally realized that they were not getting a good deal on many financial products, that the banks were amazingly inefficient, their IT systems were horrible, their consumer experience were a disaster. And then you had these new startups, what we call the fintechs, um, you know, showing up and providing much more like streamlined access to basic financial services with much more user-friendly interface, much faster. Uh, and people started using them. So I think that created then a new wave of innovation and competition, which was good for consumers. And we are seeing the benefits of that today to some extent. Right. It's a bit unequal. I mean, it's not the same in all the markets, but clearly like um, in uh, some retail finance, in some insurance markets, and in most of the asset management industry, I think we see uh, improvements. Now, I, I don't know if we can say the same about uh, healthcare, unfortunately. And when you talk about healthcare, you say, well, 
the U.S. has the best technology, the best hospitals, but by almost any way you want to measure it, we spend way more than anyone else. And our health outcomes are really, I guess I'd say mediocre, even after we adjust for every conceivable thing you could adjust for. And so what's the competition relationship here? How is how is competition play into our our very inefficient healthcare system in the United States? So it's at the same time easy and and very hard. It's easy superficially because there is no competition in healthcare and prices are extremely high. So the reason that healthcare costs are very high in the US is not because people consume more healthcare services is because for the same service, they pay twice as much as anybody else. So prices are way too high. Um, and that's why healthcare is expensive. So then when prices are too high, we think it's because of a lack of competition. And that's true. So that's the part of the story which is relatively easy to tell. The problem is that uh, unlike other industries, you don't have another benchmark because there is no there is no country in the world where there is a free market for healthcare yeah. because free markets do not work in the healthcare system. There is a reason for that. And so you, you cannot just say, oh, we're just to you know, go, go towards free market because that was never uh, really an option anyway. So then the question is more like, what is the right balance between regulation and market incentives? And um, there, I think you see that what is clear is the US has a very bad mix of regulation and free market in healthcare leading to extremely inefficient outcomes. Um, so that's very clear. Now, the way to solve it is, it depends, actually. You could go towards a bit more free market or a bit more regulation, but staying where you are now, stuck in the middle, is clearly a disaster. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in Europe, you can find cases going both ways. I mean, some countries have essentially one national system run by the government, and that's it. And most countries in Europe are going to have a mixture of private and public uh, provision of uh, health services. Uh, but in every country, there is a form of price control. There is not a single country in the world that has reasonably low healthcare costs without having some form of price control, usually taking the form of you know, some baseline uh, uh, rates of uh, services that are offered to everyone uh, via a well, baseline insurance market where the government uh, negotiates the prices of basic services. Um, that's usually the way price control effectively happens. Um, and the, without that, at least we can say there is no example around the world of affordable healthcare without something like that. Yeah. And it seems to me that that, that brings in the lobbying connection there because, of course, that all that money that we're inefficiently spending on healthcare goes to goes to somebody and it goes to the healthcare industry that lobbies quite extensively to make sure that uh, to make sure that the current system stays well not too different from what it currently is yeah and in that one you can see today the debate on surprise billing uh, which is you know essentially going nowhere right even though there's a overwhelming majority of the people who find this is outrageous and something should be done. And the truth is nothing is getting done because of lobbying. And then finally, there's the tech sector. And you've talked about it already before. And as you know, and as you point out in the book, a lot of people say, well, you know, tech is, tech is different. And, and there are a lot of reasons they argue this. But there's one thing in particular, or one argument that I always thought, at least on the surface, maybe 
was made some sense. And that's this idea of, of network effects. And, you know, the idea that obviously the more people that use Facebook or Google, the more valuable they become. And in a sense, it seems to me that you can make an argument, and some people do, that competition here would actually be a loss for consumers because, number one, they're not paying anything. And number two, if you have different social networks or search engines, then that's just that's just less efficient and it's uh, less, I mean, fewer people in there. So it's a net loss. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I think there's a difference between a natural monopoly and natural oligopoly. So when we say monopoly, like the, the, the strict definition of monopoly is that there's one firm. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, we say oligopoly to say there are several big firms. And I think there's no question that these markets don't have room for 200 small firms. But there's a big difference between you know one firm and two or three competing. And let's let's make, take an example which is going to be a bit controversial. I actually think the, the retail sector is pretty good in the US. And I don't think Amazon has a lot of market power in retail. And the reason I think that is because their margins are not very high. They, they do have a bit too much power vis-a-vis -vis their, their merchants, their suppliers. And so it would be good to you know, slap them on the wrist a little bit when they abuse uh, the power they have vis-a-vis -vis their suppliers by copying what they do, the, some of the Amazon brand, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but by and large, the retail market is very competitive. Prices are low, and you know, and the competition in retail is very close behind. Uh, Walmart is not that far behind Amazon. So you now, of course, you cannot have fifteen firms in that market. Right. But if you have, you know, Amazon in retail, Walmart, and if, and maybe one or two others, I think you can go a long way, and that's going to be enough for competition. Now, the case of online advertising with Google and Facebook is very different. This is a place where there is just no competition and that's bad. Um, now the consumers don't see it directly because they don't pay for it with their own directly, with their own fees immediately. They pay for it indirectly because all the firms they are buying from have to pay this extra tax to Amazon and Google to be able to access online advertising. Um, so, but I think in terms of monopoly, that's way too high. And I don't think there's any reason for this market to be so concentrated. You could easily have two or three search engines and four or five big platforms for uh, online advertising. You know, the reason that we don't have that is because these firms have successfully managed to monopolize the market by buying everything that could remotely become a competitor. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. This happened uh, actually just, I think, a few weeks ago. I think I read where the uh, Department of Justice is going to look into some of those uh, small firm acquisitions. Because if I, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, yeah, I'm sure you'll know. But that if I understand correctly, that uh, many of the acquisitions they made were so small that they didn't trigger any kind of antitrust review. But now some they're wondering, well, is this a is this a problem we should look into when even though it doesn't trigger it, it basically kills any competition before it gets to that that level. Is that is that more or less right? Yeah, that's exactly right. The problem is the, the small acquisitions, they don't even get reported really. So we don't even know how many there are. Um so and and some of them could be many of the many of course, many acquisitions are for the right reasons, which is you're buying a product which you're going to incorporate and make it more efficient, or often you're also buying the brains. You're actually buying the human capital. Right. 
in the startup to bring it uh, at home. And firms have been doing that for as long as capitalism has been around. And most of the time, it's great. But it cannot be the absolute rule that is always like that. It cannot be to an extent where absolutely nothing else gets out because then you end up with big monopolies. So I think that's the issue. And so I guess it would be a really pretty tricky problem to figure out how much is too much. And when I think about the history of, say, Google uh, in particular, it seems like there's just a a series, a massive series of acquisitions of small companies. That's right. But I think that uh, I think that what we need right now is to have the first of all, the, the thing to understand is this thing should have been investigated a long time ago. Even, you know, with, with or without the presumption that something must be done, we need to know. And therefore, the only way to know is to have some investigation to get the data. Um, the fact that the investigation was delayed so much, I think that's bad. Uh, and the, the way it was delayed was 100% via lobby. Um, so that's the first thing. So finally, we're going to get an investigation. We're going to get some information. And I don't think the, nobody thinks that, that this firm should have no right to make acquisitions. It's just I think we need to raise the standard, raise the bar a little bit so that at least some firms don't get acquired and get the chance to become competitors in the future. Yeah. So when, when you kind of pull back and look at all this in terms of potential solutions, what are maybe one or two things that you think would be most important to do or to change to try to get the U.S. back on a more competitive, a competitive footing? Well, the first thing is that people need to ask a tough question to their elected officials. Uh, why am I paying so much for my cell phone bills? Why am I paying so much for my uh, cable uh, or my broadband? Why is it that I only have one airline train from my uh, airport? I think these are policy choices. And then if people are not happy with it, they need to complain. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, uh, in terms of you know broad strategies, is... Um, and, and there I'm probably, I'm showing my own uh, views to some extent. Sure. I, I'm like a bit of an extreme centrist, you know, so <laughs> I think that uh, I look back in the days where antitrust was more of a bipartisan issue and I think it was better. So I think anything that could make that bipartisan again would be great. Having free market should not be something that the right or the left uh, likes it should be something that both like because it benefits everybody, and so anything that moves back in that direction of having some consensus about what should be done so that the policies are consistent over time. Free markets are great; they are com- a public good for everyone, for every citizen of the U.S., and they, they are not just for the Democrats or the Republicans. And so, free market and uh, enforcement uh, should be something which is bipartisan. It was like that in the past, and I think that's something that should come back. Um, now, the way you do it, of course, depends a bit on the industry, but, you know, find some common ground. If you agree on some industry need to be investigated, then do it together. Um, and um, at some point also, so that would be like this, the big goal. The third point I would say is that it's hard for me to imagine that this would be sustainable in the long run without some form of reform of campaign finance. Yeah. Because at Deep down, I think lobbying is fine. I think lobbying is part of the freedom of expression of everybody, businesses included. But when it gets to a level to, le- to the level we have today of the impact on campaign finance, 
I think that is not sustainable. So some kind of broad consensus on limits to big big donations for campaign finance, I think that would be useful. Yeah, I, I completely agree. One final quick question. How optimistic are you that any of this will happen in a significant degree? I don't know. I mean, I think that um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic in the sense that I think many people get the feeling that um, something is not working quite right. Um, and that um, it's only going to get stronger when the economy uh, slows down a little bit. Right now, we are still, you know, mostly benefited. I mean, the, the big thing that's going on right now is the government is running a gigantic deficit. So it's like what Trump did mostly, the Trump administration mostly was to run a gigantic Keynesian, uh, you know, program in the middle of a boom so that the economy is going to go even faster. But mm -hmm. if it's not followed by productivity gains, that's not going to be very sustainable. Right. So I think people at some point are going to realize that you know there's still something missing, and then they they will be pressured to to act. So that I think is the the reason I'm optimistic. Yeah. The reason I... I'm pessimistic is because um, lobbying are, is still there, and because you have the issue of China, which is a real issue, but oftentimes used as an excuse for lack of competition at home. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, I would think that if you if you could get Americans to believe that we're losing the competition race to France, that that would that would unite a lot of Americans on both sides of the aisle, certainly. Well, I, I know we, we're out of time, but I just want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk with me again. The book is uh, The Great Reversal, and I just I had a great time reading it and a great time talking with you today. Thank you. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.